your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. And let us listen carefully as, as we read God's Word. Uh, the Jews have returned, uh, the exiles have the first wave, at least, has returned to Jerusalem. And we read in chapter 3, verse 1, When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of uh, Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to burn, uh, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Thus sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that even though the flower does fade, the word of our God will stand forever. And so as we come this morning, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to, to heed this word that you have spoken to us. Lord, to receive it in the spirit in which you have given it. Lord, to tr trust you and to know that your word is faithful. Uh, Father, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. That sometimes, God, we can be dull. Lord, sometimes we can we not hear. But we pray for your spirit to do a work in us, to increase our faith, to encourage us in our walk with you. Lord, for those that may not know you, to come to faith in you. We thank you, O oh God, uh, for hearing our prayers. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at half of chapter 3. I wish we could have looked at all of it, and we'll get to the rest uh, next week. Uh, but this is really a chapter on worship uh, that we'll be looking at. And really, if you think about the, the church and the center or the mission or the focus of the church, it's really not evangelism or missions. It's not even discipleship. We talk about how we're a discipling church it's not social justice. It's not transformation or all any of these other buzzwords that you hear going around in, in our culture. But the center of the church is the worship of the living God. That's the mission of the church, for us to worship God. You, you most likely have heard John Piper say something like, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't, right? You've heard that because there are people out there, you know, that have been made in the image of God who do not worship him. So therefore, we have missions to go out and to share the gospel that they might come to faith in him and they might be amongst the throng in heaven that may worship him for for all eternity. 
And so worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not mankind. And when the, that day comes and we will stand before uh, the Lord in heaven with all the myriads of myriads of saints, uh, we will worship Him. Missions will be no more. Discipleship will be no more. Those things are necessary now. They're, they are good things and things that the church should be involved in. But worship, brothers and sisters, is the focus of the church. And it abides forever. And so that's what our text is about today is worship. And I want us to look at a number of things. And, and I think nothing that I say will probably surprise most of you. Uh, but I hope it will encourage you uh, to, to do that which God has commanded us to do as we look at this topic of worship. And the first thing we see that this text talks about is the priority of worship. The priority of worship. Worship was a priority for the exiles who returned. It took them four months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we know that. You don't have to turn there. But if you want to look later at Ezra chapter 7 verse 9. It gives us that, that timetable of the amount of time that it took. And uh, so if you would uh, just think about what you were doing on January 28th of 2023. And everything that has transpired in your life from that day until today, and that's how long it took these exiles to make their way to Jerusalem. That's a, quite a bit of time, a lot of water that's going under the bridge. And yet, while these Jews were home, they were really not home. Uh, kids, if, if you have ever gone on a trip with your parents, and, you know, maybe you've gone on a long trip and it's been a week or two weeks, and uh, maybe you went somewhere to see some sights. Maybe you went to the Grand Canyon or maybe you went to Disney or some other place to, to have some encounter. Or maybe you went to visit family members, maybe an aunt and an uncle or, or maybe grandparents or something. And you were on this long trip. And while maybe you didn't appreciate the car ride too much, you thought that it was lots of fun to, to be doing whatever it was that you're doing on this vacation. Uh, but you know what? As much fun as it is, wasn't it also good to be home once again after a week or two? If you didn't feel that way, I'm sure your parents felt that way. It was good for them to be back in their own bed and to be sort of back in the routine, especially if they were visiting grandparents. They could start the debriefing period with you kids, try to get you back to where you're behaving as you should have while, you're, while they're parents spoiled you rotten and all that good stuff but anyway there's just like no place like home but that's not what it was like for these Israelites when they came back to Jerusalem many of these Jews had never even been to Jerusalem uh, some have uh, grown up their whole life in Babylon and and what they heard was the stories of Jerusalem they heard the stories of the temple and what God's people had done and so really for them it would be more like us, maybe uh, let's just say you're of Scottish descent or Irish descent, or maybe your family comes from a heritage of Africa or Russia or some other part of the world, and you heard your great-grandparents tell the stories of, uh, or great-grandparents -grand, great who came to America, and they told your grandparents and your parents, and they told you, and so these stories sort of passed down through the generation, and then the day came when you were actually able to go visit that homeland that your family had come from. And so while you went and you, you, you remember hearing these stories, 
and it was so good to go visit this place and see what it was really like, it, it was still a strange place because you had never been there before. And that's a lot like it was for these Jews. Even those who had once lived in Jerusalem were probably very young and didn't remember a lot. And even if they did, it wasn't the same place. The walls were torn down. The city was in a shambles. And so it was a very, very different place. And not only that, but, but the, the local residents were not very friendly towards you. And here again, kids, if you could just imagine that, you know, you, if people showed up in your neighborhood and they said to you, well, we used to live in this town and now we're back and, and we're looking for a place to live. And maybe they were even asking you, can I stay with you for a while until I find a place to live? You know, that, that would be a little unsettling, but we're not just talking about a family or two. We're talking about like 42,360 people showing up in your neighborhood saying, hey, we want to stay here. You know, that, they, you know, wow, they're back, you know, right? And, and there's so many of them that they're even changing the, cult, the character of Jerusalem and the surrounding area just by uh, their very presence. And so they were sort of scattered in all these, these towns. That's what we read in Ezra chapter 2, verse 70, where it talks about how the priests and the Levites and the, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel lived in their towns. And so these exiles were sort of permeating uh, the, the culture, the society. Um, um, and so their presence was really hard to ignore. But then we read in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, that God doesn't leave them scattered. He actually brings them together. He begins to work in their hearts, uh, much like he did in Ezra 2, verse 5, uh, to, to call them to a task. We read in verse 1, uh, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now, one man means they, they gather as his people for a particular task. And they did this in the seventh month. Now, I'm going to tell you more about this seventh month later when we get to the last point of the sermon. But most likely, this was not seven months after they got back. There's, there's differences of opinion amongst commentators exactly how long had transpired but most likely and I would say probably most agree that this was instead in the seventh month of the year and if they left in the spring and it took them four months to get back they probably were not in Jerusalem very long before God called them to Jerusalem uh, to this task and so here's a city that's in rubbles no walls no protection there's no temple it had been destroyed by the Babylonians and then we read in verse 2, then arose Jeshua, right? He was a, a, a priest along with his fellow priests, along with Zerubbabel uh, and his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings as it, on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, what is noticeable about our text, and I don't want to read too much into the text, but it is very noticeable about the exiles, is that when they returned to Israel, they did not make it their first matter of business to provide the necessities for themselves and their families. That instead, they focused upon reestablishing the worship of God. That was their first priority. You know, because if you think about it, surely pressing on their minds were the matters of, we need to build a house for ourselves. Or, and we need to establish an economy 
to support ourselves. Like I said, they were 42,000 uh, men, women, and children that, that had come. They needed some way to support themselves. And not only that, but as I said earlier, they didn't get along with their neighbors. Look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 3. You see that there was a, a fear of the Israelites towards these people around them. And in chapter 4, we'll get a little bit better sight in a couple of weeks insight as, as to what exactly the dynamic was and what was going on. And so they could have very easily validated, uh, have valid reasons to say, look, let's put the building of the temple on hold and let's just get our life established first and then we'll do that. But instead, that's not what happens. Instead, God calls them, calls the leaders, both the church leaders, the priests, and the civil leaders, Zerubbabel, uh, to not lean on their own understanding or their own reason, but to trust the Lord, to acknowledge Him and know what God would do to direct their paths. And so that's what they do. We see them looking at God's Word. They, he, he talks about the law of Moses to see what God's priority was. And then once they saw what it was that was spelled out in God's Word, they did it. They did it. They obeyed what they said, what the Lord said. And so they repaired or they rebuilt the altar of the Lord on the spot where the altar in Solomon's temple had stood. Now, kids, understand when we're talking about this altar, you know, I think when a lot of people thought, think of the altar, we don't have our baptismal out here, but our baptismal is pretty small. And a lot of people will oftentimes think that's like what the size of the altar was, just somewhere where they could just do like a sacrifice or something. Actually, the altar if I understand correctly, was like 40 feet wide and 20 feet tall. Kids, to give you an idea of how big that is, this room is 20 feet wide. So that's like twice as wide as this room, as this sanctuary, was the top of the altar. And it was as tall as this room is wide. And it had this ramp that went up to the top that the priest could walk up to to offer these sacrifices. So we're not talking about some place where it's just like the size of this pulpit and maybe you could just offer one little sacrifice. You could offer multiple sacrifices on this altar. And so they, they, they built this. They started with the altar because that's all they could do at that time. Uh, to build the temple would take time and supplies. And, and as we look at next week, we'll, we'll see a little bit more in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3 what all was involved in terms of building the temple. And we get a little bit of uh, an idea also in the book of Haggai as well. And so they, they couldn't immediately have the temple, so they built the altar, and they rebuilt the, the altar of God. And, and they did it in the spot where it should be. You know, it's, it's interesting. When it comes to the altar of the Lord, God is very specific in how he wants built. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that oftentimes the altar of the Lord was in disrepair and it wasn't the, the job of the prophet or whoever it was that the Lord was raising up to bring renewal and repentance in Israel to build a new altar, but was to rebuild the altar of the Lord as God had prescribed. And so they rebuilt this altar much the same way that Abraham, when he had come to the promised land, right, when he was first called, he would build an altar before the Lord so he could make sacrifices to God. And, and this is a good reminder of the priority that worship must have in our lives, that God must have in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we must begin all of life with God. 
Uh, I would even say this, the more pressing the concerns are of our lives, the more we must uh, acknowledge that God is with us. We need that. We need that, just like the Israelites did. They had pressing needs that, that were all around them, and some we'll talk about uh, this week a little bit more and, and in the weeks to come. But in spite of that, their focus was upon the Lord. And it's in these times that we must be more diligently to compare our thoughts and our reasons with God's will. You know, we oftentimes think that we know best, but do we check what we know and what we think we ought to do with God's Word? That's the one thing that probably has struck me as I've been reading through the Bible this year. I've been spending most of my time in the Old Testament uh, so far. And that's what I see, that if a man is following the Lord, he was always very careful to compare what he thinks ought to be done with, with what God actually says in His Word. And oftentimes that would take the form of a man of God going to a prophet and saying, would you inquire of the Lord, is this what I'm supposed to do? David did this all the time. Even though he was a mighty warrior and he knew exactly what to do strategically and, and as, a, as a great general, he still would take the time to go before the Lord and say, is this what you want me to do? And lots of times God would say yes, but sometimes God would say, this is how I want you to do it. And, and he would direct him. And, and that's why worship must be a priority of every believer. You know, corporate worship, our family worship, our personal worship, uh, is that we might turn our focus upon the Lord and seek His will and His honor and His glory. You see, sin alienates us from God. I mean, we know that, just like these Israelites were alienated from God when they were in exile. But as they were redeemed... And, and when God redeems us, he brings us close once again in sweet fellowship with him. And, and, and I, I just want to make this point today as we think about worship. What is worship but the most intimate expression of fellowship a Christian can have with God? Did you hear that? What is worship but the most intimate expression of fellowship a Christian can have with God? And so worship is, is not a priority merely out of a sense of duty of, well, that's what Christians are supposed to do. But it's actually a privilege to be with God and to enjoy His presence. It's to be in that sweet fellowship. It is to have that sweet intimacy with Him. Of course, Satan doesn't want that. Right? Satan doesn't want that. And he works very hard to keep God's people away from worship. There's probably nothing more difficult in your daily routine than to spend time with God in worship and enjoy Him. I mean, there may be times when, when you get your Bible reading in and stuff, and, and that's, uh, that's great, but sometimes you sort of have to rush through it and stuff, maybe because of time restraints or whatever. But to, to have that time just to be still and be before, be before the Lord and to commune with Him and worship Him and praise Him is such a sweet and a glorious thing. But Satan doesn't want that, so he's going to do everything to keep us from that. I mean, I bet for most of us, Sunday mornings is the most difficult uh, time of the week that we have to get out the door. I'm not saying you don't have other difficult times, especially if you have kids. You know, I'm not saying you don't have other difficult times, but probably there's nothing like a Sunday morning 
when you're trying to get out the door to come and to worship the Lord. Um, but unfortunately, many Christians have forsaken the worship of God as a priority. You know, unfortunately, you have many people who call themselves Christians who would rather be home and watch a live stream of the worship service than come and be with God's people to worship Him. And I just have to say this, I am so thankful you're not those people. You know, that's one thing that has really stood out to me uh, as we've gone through COVID and all of that. You were here and you wanted to be here. And as a pastor, I'm so thankful for that. And, you know, there's times when people, maybe because of health reasons or age or or things like that, uh, the elderly, that may be hard for them to make it to corporate worship. So I'm not knocking that, but I'm just talking about those who say, wow, let's do stay home. You know, then we don't have to get dressed up. We don't have to try to get the kids out the door. It gives us more time after church where we can get to the the activities that we want to do. It's just more of a self-serving thing. You know, it's not uncommon for for people today to attend worship maybe a couple of times a month and consider themselves uh, regular attenders of worship. And then when you ask them where they were and that we missed you and how are you doing, and they say, oh, well, my kids had scout troop uh, camp out or my family is in town or I was helping someone with this or that or, or whatever. And, you know, they've done those things that they think are best, but they've ignored that priority of worship. But let me just tell you this. That's a dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters. You know, as a result, parents and, and grandparents, unfortunately, have taught their kids that while God is important, he's not of utmost importance. He's not the top priority. I, I think of uh, one family that we had in one church we were in, and, you know, they would oftentimes during the last hymn uh, leave the worship service to go get dressed, to go to the, the sporting activity that they, were, that they had after church. And what they didn't realize is, is what they were communicating to their kids was that God's important, but this sporting activity is more important because we've got to make sure that we get this done and get this fit in so we can be there on time. And I have watched a number of young people who have been lukewarm in their faith and even walked away from the church because they've gotten this message through their whole life, well, God's important, but he's of not the most importance. He's not a first priority. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that every kid that walks away from the faith or is lukewarm is because parents didn't worship and didn't make that a priority, okay? There are, there's many other reasons as well, but I think that's one that can sneak up on us and has much in the church. Um, but how often do other matters that we deem so important keep us from the priority of worship that God establishes in His Word? Not just on Sunday mornings, but even in our personal worship time or our family worship time. What place does worship play in our lives? And, and it's not just a matter of whether you can be here or not. I, I, you know, if I was sitting in your place, I would be pretty proud by now because I would be saying, well, I always come to worship. You know, I do that all the time. I'm, yeah, I'm too, I'm, yeah, Pastor Rick preaches. These people need to hear this. You know, that's exactly what I would be thinking. But the reality is we can be here faithfully every Sunday. We can have our personal worship time. We can have our family worship time. But we can just be going through the motions and not really even engaging and enjoying the sweet fellowship of God. And so we might physically be present in worship 
and yet we're just going through the motions. So we need to be careful and to, to look at this. Worship is the most intimate expression of fellowship a Christian can have with God. And there's no place we see God more clearly for who He is than in times of worship. Likewise, there's no places that we see ourselves more clearly than when we are in worship. And we are reminded who we are. So, so here's God's people. They set that priority of worship and the altar is rebuilt and, and they're offering the sacrifices, which of course, these sacrifices would have signaled the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And, and, and it also would remind them too as well that the blood of bulls and lambs could never take away the sins. Only the blood of Christ spilt for them, as the book of Hebrews talks about, could really pay that penalty. And we know that. And we know that. They knew that atonement for sin is where one's relationship with God begins. That's why the altar, because they could offer the, the sacrifice. They knew that their, their sins had to be atoned for, and that's what God had instructed them that was necessary. And my question for us today is, is that where our life begins? If, if you're here today, it, have your sins been forgiven? Do you know that for a fact? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of the sins that you have committed against God, against one another? And even if you're here today and you are a believer, do you begin your relationship with the Lord in repentance and confession? Ben did a good job this past Wednesday of, of reminding us of that as we come to the Lord in prayer of the need to, to ask forgiveness, to, to be repentant before the Lord as we come before Him. Uh, you can't serve the Lord if you're not right with Him. And, and that's where we must all begin. And that's where we begin in our worship service. Early on in our worship service, what do we have? Confession of sins. That we acknowledge our need of, of God's forgiveness. That gives us a good perspective of who we are. As I said before, we can just breeze right through that without even engaging our mind. But when we truly take the time to think about the sins that we have committed and our unworthiness before God, that humbles us in the rest of our worship. And it reminds us of who He is and what great forgiveness He has given to us. Look at verse 3. Uh, you see something really interesting. It says they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. You see the people around them in Moab and Edom and even the Samaritans were hostile to them. And, and, and I know it seems sort of strange to think that fear could be a motivation to cause them to worship. And yet it, it appears, at least from the text that's before us, that that was the case. Um, but in another sense, what better thing to do when you're afraid but to come to God to worship? Uh, I can remember the Sunday after 9-11 when the Twin Towers were taken down. And, and just how many people, how many more people there were in worship than there were the Sunday before. And, and that continued for a while until the threat seemed to subside and then the attendance began to subside as well. But there was a sense of, of turning to the Lord in need. 
and, and there's nothing in all of life that puts things in proper perspective than worship because we see God is big and ourselves and our enemies and our problems and our circumstances as small. <coughs> Ed Welch uh, wrote, he's a Christian counselor, he wrote a book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, because that's oftentimes the way we're tempted to view life, right? We're, we're tempted to view life as, you know, God's this tiny little God, uh, and yet people are big, and they could do something. They could harm us. And, um, but I love the subtitle to Ed Welch's book. He said, when people are big and God is small, overcoming peer pressure, codependency, and fear of man. Boy, those are things we wrestle with, aren't they? Because we do. We get that backwards, and we think that God is so tiny, and that people are so big, and they can hurt us or harm us in some way, but they can't. But as you struggle with all of the circumstances of life that, that swirl around you and you are tempted to fear or to be afraid, go to God and worship and find your comfort in Him and your security in Him. Now, the second and the third points, they're a lot shorter, okay? The, the second one, actually, I've almost uh, covered in my first point, so I'll just mention it sort of briefly. And that is, not only is there the priority of worship, but there's the regulation of worship. Um, God informs us how we are to worship. If you look at verse 2 and verse 4, there's actually the same phrase used in both verses. It says, as it is written. The, the motivation that the people of God had to do what they did was not because it was their personal preference. It's not because, oh, well, that's just what our heritage is is Jews, you know, but instead we do this because this is what God has told us to do in his word. And so as you look at this and you ask sort of the question, did, did the Jews feel like they were sort of entitled to worship any way they pleased? The answer is clearly no. What, what drove them in their worship was not some ambiguity of personal taste or preference, but it was in thus saith the Lord. This is what God has, has said. And so even though they have not been able to worship the Lord for several generations the way he had prescribed, they knew that when the day came when God would bring them back to the promised land, that they could once again worship. And so the Lord raised up godly leaders, Jeshua the priest and Zebuel the, the civic leader, that insisted that the worship can be truly offered only according to, to the written scriptures. And so that's what they did. And, and I think, how different would the American church be if we had such convictions today? How, how different would our worship services look like in churches across America if we took to heart that God is the one that regulates his worship and we must do what he says? Unfortunately, we, we not only don't concern ourselves with that, but we have even redefined worship. And for many churches... They think of worship primarily in terms of music, that that's the worship. You have the sermon, but the real good stuff, the worship stuff, uh, is the music. And so you'll have people ask you questions like, well, what's your worship like? What's your worship like? You know, what they're really asking you is, what's your music like? Is it contemporary music? Is it traditional music? Or is it some kind of blend of the two? Or what do you guys have? Tell me. And unfortunately, because we've come to view worship that way, as a result, prayer is beginning to diminish and, and, and to not be found quite as prevalent in the worship service. And brothers and sisters, I'm talking about PCA churches. 
I've been to PCA churches where there was rarely a prayer spoken to the Lord. Maybe once. Maybe twice. Now, I'm not suggesting that most PCA churches are like that, but I have been in churches where that's the case. And, and we see in more and more churches where Scripture is not read. Maybe the Scripture is read right before the sermon. And, uh, and that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the sermon is about the Scripture that was read. You know, sometimes it's nothing but just a bunch of cutesy stories, very entertaining things, things that will tickle the ears, as the Apostle Paul said. Or, or maybe it's a, a, a platform to make comments on social issues of the day. And people think that's what worship is. But God has laid down how he desires to be worshipped. And so the reason we worship the way we worship at Kirk of the Plains is for that reason. We're not cutting edge. We're not innovative. The things that we do aren't the preference of Pastor Rick. And he started the church, so he gets to decide how we worship. That's not... That's not what we do. What we do is historical. It's biblical. It's what God says he wants. Now, that worship can look different from church to church because, you know, God doesn't tell us specifically, you know, what that needs to look like. So there might be some churches where there's a little bit more uh, contemporary way in which they sing, you know, uh, biblical songs or hymns or things like that. Um, Prayers or, or scripture reading may look a little bit different. We read an Old Testament and a New Testament scripture reading, and then the text that we're going to preach on. And, and we do that partly because it does seem like scripture is disappearing from the worship service. But then other churches will maybe read just the New Testament scripture reading or something. And so it might look a little bit different, but the elements are all there and they're the same. And so there is really, in a sense, sort of work when it comes to worship. In the modern church, we've lost the idea that work, that worship requires work. We need to know what God says, and we need to seek to lead uh, in worship in our households, men, especially you that are the heads of your households. You need to make sure that you do the work to train your family as to what God has said about worship and, and what that looks like. But unfortunately, we are tempted to be self-pleasing and lazy and therefore dishonoring to the Lord. I, here again, if I might say, I am very thankful for you as a congregation. And the things that I hear and the, the ways I see you wrestle, you take these things very much to heart. And I appreciate that. So we have the priority of worship. We, we have the regulation of worship, which is by God. And the focus of worship is the true God of Israel. That's what the focus of worship is. Notice the very first thing that the Israelites do when the altar is done. They begin to look to God's word to see what God says, and they begin to celebrate the feast. And in this case, the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the ingathering. We see that in Ezra 3, uh, verse 4. Now, now, to appreciate what's being said here, you have to understand that the seventh month was sort of a big month for the celebration of the Jews and their calendar. In the same way for us, November, December, you know, you, you have Thanksgiving, you have Christmas, and then, you know, maybe March, April, we, we have uh, Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And so we have those special times that, that it seems like there's a lot of concentration though, where there's a focus on certain things. And it was the same way with the Jews. They, during that seventh month of the year, which was, 
is like September to October to us, okay? God had commanded his people to hold certain feasts during the year, and in the seventh month, there were quite a few of them. Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, Shakat, which is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, and, and it was one, uh, it, this was one of the, the three most important festivals of the Hebrew calendar, uh, as we talked about during the book of Psalms. Uh, there was actually three major festivals. You had the Passover, which is in the spring. You had the Feast of Weeks, which is in the summer, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, in the fall. And it was during those feasts that the Jews were to make their way to Jerusalem, where all the Jewish males were required to appear before the Lord in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, of course, the exiles couldn't do that because the temple had not been rebuilt yet. But still, they could keep uh, this, this ceremony that was commanded in the scripture. And so the Feast of Booths was, was celebrated. Now, what exactly is going on in that? What, what is being taught? Well, it really is a celebration of two things. First, it's a celebration of Thanksgiving for the completion of the harvest or the agricultural year. It's, it's sort, somewhat similar to our Thanksgiving, uh, being thankful to God for his provision for the way he had provided for them. But then its main characteristic is the requirement of Israelites to leave their homes and to dwell in temporary shelters. Kids, if you've ever gone camping in a tent, it was sort of like that. They had to have at least three walls and a, and a roof covering it. Uh, but it was, it was something like that. And it was to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt and how God had brought them out and how they, during their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the Lord had protected them, he had provided for them, and he had cared for them. And it was during that time that the Israelites had no homes to live in and so they were wholly dependent upon the Lord, totally had to trust the Lord. And so what God was doing was he was once again reminding them that they were, that they were constantly dependent on him. Now, think about this. Okay, here are these exiles who are, who are coming back to Jerusalem. They've been traveling for four months. They get back. They may have been back for even a matter of a couple of weeks. Okay, not very long at all. And then all of a sudden, after this arduous journey that they had, then they were asked to camp out in these makeshift shelters, okay? And, and instead of the comfort of their home, and they were to experience the discomfort of, you know, sort of roughing it, right? And uh, nothing could spell out to them with greater clarity that their lives were wholly dependent upon the Lord and that he would provide for them. And so they were back in Jerusalem, but they were back as pilgrims pilgrims that were on a journey, uh, just reminding them that God was bringing them once again to the promised land and that they are wanderers and strangers in this world. And, and in the midst of this, I think this is interesting, that they encounter these neighbors that are hostile to them. And yet in the midst of that, God has them celebrate this feast, which would have reminded them that God had already brought them through many things in the past. And if God had taken them through all these things in the wilderness, could he not provide for them today? And so they had come home. But this Jerusalem was not their ultimate home. 
They were gathered together as one in Jerusalem, but their unity was not yet complete. They, they would sacrifice bulls and lambs repeatedly, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, according to the plan laid out in God's word, but only in anticipation that one day the Lamb of God would come who would take away the sins of the world. The things that they were doing were just reminding them that their salvation had not come in its fullness yet, but the time would come. And they would meet in booths to remind them that they were pilgrims in this world. Brothers and sisters, is, not, is that not where we live as God's people? And what better way to remind us of these things than as we gather to worship Him, to know that one day, just like they would find themselves home again, you know, in their ultimate home, we will find ourselves at home with the Lord in heaven, gathered from every tribe and tongue and language and people to worship and praise our God. But in the meantime, until that day, until that time comes, He has given us times of worship in Him, right? What a blessing God is. Let's bow our heads as we consider these things this morning. Thank you for the sweet privilege of fellowship with you in our times of worship with you uh, each and every day, uh, Lord, weekly as we gather with your people to, to worship. But Lord, it, it is sometimes hard, and Satan is working hard to, to come against us. But we pray, Lord, for, for strength, for endurance, in the same way that the exiles made it a priority, Lord, to be with you, to, to worship you, Lord, so may we be such people, God, that we might enjoy your presence. Lord, know that, that the focus of all that we do, whether it's worship with our, our tongues or, or whether it's, Lord, worshiping you with the way that we live our lives, that in all those things that you are the true focus, God, may we live to glorify you. May we live as your people, as pilgrims in this land, looking for the time when we will have a better home, not being attached to the things of this world, but delighting in you and so thankful, God, that you were present with your people and you will never leave nor forsake us. And Lord, so we pray as we leave this place that we would leave this place conscious of your presence throughout this week. Lord, in the things that we do day in and day out, Lord, may it draw us our hearts ever closer back to you. We pray in your name. Amen.